Greetings. Thank you for coming. My name is Rick Archer. I have an interview show called Buddha at the Gas Pump, and uh, there are a number of points which come up in the interviews which um, I feel need to be clarified for more for the general spiritual community. Not that I'm necessarily in a position to clarify them, but we're all on this path together, and I think there are certain um, understandings that need to be worked out in greater depth and detail. So I asked Maurizio if I might give a presentation here about those points, and he said, great. And uh, then I thought, well, you know, it'd be more interesting if it were a panel. So I began to think of friends uh, uh, whom I would like to invite, and here we have our panel. I'd like to introduce them, maybe starting with John at the far end, and then we'll get right into it. Time is very short, and we are not actually going to take questions during our 45 minutes, but we're coming right up to the lunch break. So at the end, we'll sit here as long as you like and, and discuss and, and answer questions. However, John has a flight to catch at 2.10, and he's going to just fly out of here. So please don't waylay him with any questions or anything. He has to just go. It's crazy that he's even here, and I really appreciate his, his taking the time. I first met John over 40 years ago. Uh, as he said yesterday, he was immobilized in a body cast. Uh, this was in his prep school infirmary, which, where I ran into him. And there's an interesting story beyond that, behind that, which I won't tell at the moment. But um, when he was released from the body cast, uh, he had so much momentum built up that he just flew into a wonderful career and became a uh, world-class quantum physicist. Um, you've probably heard his bio if you've been to any of his presentations, but he is an, ex an educator, a public policy expert, and leading proponent of peace. He received degrees from... Dartmouth, Harvard, and conducted pioneering research uh, at CERN, the European Center for Particle Physics, and SLAC, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. His contributions in the fields of electroweak unification, grand unification, supersymmetry, and cosmology include some of the most cited references in the physical sciences. He's also responsible for the development of a highly successful grand unified field theory based on the superstring. But Dr. Hagelin is unique among scientists in being the first to apply this most advanced knowledge for the practical benefit of humankind. He has pioneered the use of unified field-based technologies proven to reduce crime, violence, terrorism, and war, and to promote peace throughout society, technologies derived from the ancient Vedic science of consciousness. To John's left, it's funny, when I invited John, Maurizio said, well, John's doing quite a few talks. You also need to get some fresh blood in there. So these two gentlemen are as fresh as blood gets. <laughs> to John's left is Mark McCooey, and he's never really spoken before in, in the kind of context that he's about to speak. But he has been teaching meditation for over 40 years, and by keeping in contact with the, even the earliest of his students over the course of that time, has become very familiar with their detailed descriptions of higher states of consciousness. Mark speaks about the experiences of higher states from the perspective of yoga, or union, with non-dual being, being a ground floor baseline for great beauty and development to follow. He quotes as follows, Our earliest experiences of non-dual reality carry great freedom and liberation. That infinite being now knows itself without restrictions to be unbounded, yet still does not know still does not understand intimately the mystery of the world and environment that it surrounds. In the non-dual state, being is now liberated from thinking it is an individual and now needs to uncover its deeper role in the many forms and contents of the environment. This even deeper mystery needs to be solved, but it is now 
non-dual being that is the detective, not the individual person. And Mark speaks from experience in having written that. And then to uh, my right, Igor Kufayev was born in 1966 in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. In his childhood, he had many experiences associated with the awakening of latent energy. Classically trained in art from an early age, he was recognized as something of a prodigy. A one-time student at the St. Petersburg Academy of Fine Arts, Igor had his first solo ex exhibition at the age of 25, and by his early 30s enjoyed an international art career in London. Alongside of his passion for art, he was always drawn to Eastern philosophies with yoga and meditation as part of his daily activities. At the age of 36, Igor had undergone a radical transformation of consciousness, which subsequently blossomed into spontaneous unfoldment of grace. He abandoned his art career, and for the next five years continued long hours of meditation, integrating expanded state of awareness throughout all of his interactions. Igor points out that awakening takes place on a cellular level, and it is the physiology with its nervous system that acts as a support for individual consciousness to mature into full enlightenment. It could be said that his methods are rooted in Tantra, having studied such diverse traditions as Vedanta, Tantra, Sufi, and Zen. He remains elusive to categorization, saying that abiding in a state of spontaneous absorption transcends the boundaries of any given truth based on intellectual grasp of ultimate reality. Kashmir Shaivism became the focal point of his interest. Its transcendental physicalism appealed to his down-to-earth creative sensibility. Unique to that tradition, the doctrine of Spanda had been verified by direct experience in perceiving the world as a throb of pure consciousness in the heart of his own. He's referring to his own experience here. He readdresses the question of free will and non-dual awareness and responsibility that comes with the realization that the manifested world is not an illusion, but pulsating with infinite possibilities, reality itself. That was a fairly long introduction to everyone, um, but I wanted to give you their background. Uh, Igor is going to speak first, and then after he does, I want to just bring up a few of these points that I mentioned kind of bug me that are you know, out there and, and perhaps need a little bit deeper discussion. And then uh, all of us, John and, and Mark in particular, will address those points. So, Igor. The world is, as you see it, apparently attributed to the great sage Vashishta. What does that mean? It means that reality is perceptual. It is as we perceive it. And in order for that to happen, there has to be three components. There has to be the seer, the seeing, and the seen. So the relationship between the three, that what's to give us all this gamut of what we call experience. Without the three, there is no experience at all. When we say the seer, seeing and the seen, we obviously mean by that all the range of other sensory perceptions that take place. We don't just see, we hear, we sense, we smell, we taste, if that's what is being our experience at the time when we eat. Because of the complexity of the experience, it is sometimes, perhaps, eludes us that what we perceive at any given moment is colored very much by who is in the driving seat. Speaking of this in, con in the context of the spiritual inquiry and the spiritual uh, quest, when our awareness is dominated by the seen object in this case, that is what technically known as ignorance. That is what technically known as basically uh, avidya in Indian tradition. So when one perceives a tree, uh, a flower, sky, what have you, you know, surface of the water, any object, that 
object completely overtakes, overwhelms, overwhelms, and that is the predominant experience. When that happens, when that happens, all the other two are on the foreground. Yes. So that 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 is the case when the object dominates our perception. We often call awakening the radical shift in perception. It is a diametrically opposite reality that takes place that when suddenly the seer recognizes himself and no longer lost in the scene. Of course, one should immediately add to that that this could take all the range and all the spectrum of the experience. It's not black and white, but there is something. It is a distinctive, distinctive state, distinctive experience. Just as distinctive as waking state, it differs from the dreaming or the, that of deep sleep. Furthermore, if we kind of like a little bit uh, touch up on the summit of the spiritual awareness of what is in many traditions called enlightenment, emancipation, what have you, self-realization, is that the collapse or the merging of the seer and the seen, that is the observer and the observed, is no longer distinguishable. What, what's left is just the act of seeing, the act of perceiving. Um, it's a nameless experience. It's uh, perhaps a bit premature to talk about it at the very opening of this discussion. So what I wanted to bring uh, the attention, your attention as, a, as an audience, is that when we speak of this process of self-realization, when we speak of the process of awakening, enlightenment, it entails, it entails the often gradual transformation in the relationship of these three. So I feel this could be like a, an, an intro, intro, a set. I'd like to pass it on now. Good, thank you. Now I'd like to just bring up a couple of these points that I feel come up a lot in, in interviews and, and are out there in the uh, contemporary spiritual community, and then the other speakers will, will address them. Um, one is that I often encounter what I consider to be a confusion of levels. A person might have a clear experience, for instance, of, a, of an unmanifest silent field, or maybe they don't even have the experience, but they have a clear understanding that there is such a field, and on that level there's no person, and nothing to do, nothing happens, and so on. But they extrapolate from that, they misapply that, in my opinion, to the more manifest levels, such that they might say, well, since there is really no person and nothing to do, don't bother doing any spiritual practices because that only implies the existence of a person and you're only going to reinforce that notion. To which I respond, well then don't bother eating because it only you know, <laughs> reinforces the notion of an eater. Um, <laughs> uh, or for instance, it's popular and we all probably have felt and, and understood at times that everything is absolutely perfect just as it is. But then does that absolve us from you know, trying to solve hunger problems in Africa or you know, all the terrible things that happen in the world? Do we just accept everything is perfect? No, because on that level, everything is not perfect, and it needs to be addressed in some way. So all these levels are simultaneously true and paradoxically opposed to one another in a sense, but in the larger context and in a broader awareness in one's experience, they all fit together and are lived simultaneously in perfect harmony. 
There's a second point which I'd like us to address, which I think was um, articulated nicely by a, a wonderful gentleman that I interviewed a couple of months ago named Francis Bennett. You may have remem remember him if you watched the interviews. He's a Trappist monk, and he was in the monastery for decades and then had this profound awakening and decided it was time for him to leave the monastery. And he was living life in relative obscurity, but after the interview, he said, I'm probably still getting, and this was weeks after the interview, 40 to 50 emails a day from people asking me questions who I would guess have maybe had a momentary glimpse into the absolute reality, or at least a relatively clear conceptual grasp of it, and then it fades and disappears. It seems that many then cherish a memory of this experience and form conceptual philosophical beliefs around the memory. They then try to convince anyone who will listen that they are fully enlightened, which I am often relatively sure they are not. I try to be gentle and kind to people and quietly suggest that they may have some more work to do, but many won't listen to me at all and become very defensive and try to prove to me that they are more awake than I, which maybe they are. I really don't know or care whether they are or not, frankly. So, <laughs> so there does seem to be this syndrome out there of perhaps mistaking intellectual understanding for realization. And there's an old Tibetan proverb, which I often quote, which is, don't mistake intellectual understanding for realization. Don't mistake realization for liberation. And we could add to that, don't mistake liberation for enlightenment. So with that, I'd like to open it up to either Mark or John, whoever would like to speak first, and uh, we'll take it from there. Just a few comments, several points there. Uh, one of the things that's a mistake on any path is cherishing past experiences that tell us that we're, we're greater than we are. Uh, I like the analogy of the wave in the ocean where the wave finally has an opportunity to dive into the ocean and, and discover that it's boundaryless. And when it comes back to knowing itself as a wave, it is now cognizant of that potential but not living it yet. And this is the start of the seeking that drives us forward in our spiritual lives because the possibility has been tasted. However, it's a mistake for the wave to then want to replicate that particular dive with that particular phenomena. And I find with my meditation students, if, for example, they were sitting in a certain room with certain incense and the blinds were pulled and, and they had a certain music going on in the next room and they had a great experience, typically what they'll try to do is put the same incense sticks there. In other words, they'll try to replicate both the environment in the inner environment, and it's a mistake because this physiology is changing. The actual experience of, the, of that first dive has already transformed, and a different experience awaits. So we never try to replicate, and we just let go of those old, those old experiences. Um, language is really tricky because the things that we say that make sense in activity, or the things that we say from a state of realization, won't necessarily apply to other states. So, so knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. So for example, in India, a renunciant that wants to go to the cave and just believe and reminds himself daily that this is all maya, it's not important, I shouldn't get caught up in it. It's fine for the renunciant because his lifestyle, his choice of meditation practice, everything is appropriate to those mental instructions and reminders that he gives himself. However, the same is not true for householders. We're, we're karma yogis. Our job or our pathway largely is the pathway of uniting with pure being and then drenched in the bliss, the happiness, the, 
the peace that comes with that experience, come back out and interact with the world. And this, this becomes the way in which that deep experience gets pulled out and made fast in everyday life. Because the action after meditation, we regret. We regret because the experience fades and we say, oh, you know, I just had that beautiful meditation and now, you know, my wife's yelling at me to come to dinner and I got to go coach my kids in their soccer game or whatever it is. And I lose that deep contact with that, that union that I had, that samadhi that I had when I meditated. The thing that we don't realize is that action, that interaction with the world is actually making that dive deep and fast and integrated to the nervous system. So we never regret our action and we don't retire from life. We, we join life vigorously. In fact, with the alternating of these two modalities, we're able to enjoy our life to a far greater degree. And the other thing I was going to say is as we progress, it's really a gradation. It, it's if you follow the color spectrum blue or green to blue, uh, you'll notice as you travel it that you start with lots of green, which might be ignorance. And as the blue starts blending in, you start noticing a bit more blue with the green. And one day you wake up and it's all blue. In other words, there's a slow and gradual winking in and winking out of this state of expanded awareness that now blends and joins us. That infinite silent awareness is no longer lost in action. In fact, even more specifically, it's not lost in sleep, it's not lost in dreaming. And we have to be careful because sometimes we want to walk around saying, oh, I, I am not the doer, I am, I am uh, I'm separate from my actions. We, we can sometimes try and imagine that state of being this infinite space and yet not being the doer. And yet this state can't be faked. It's not something that we can imagine. So in sleep, there's no chance to manipulate at all. If that wakefulness is with sleep, then we know it's one of the tests that this reality is already becoming part of our life. Yeah. So I'll stop there. Yeah. I just want to uh, further a little comment on what Mark just said. Is it because the waking, dreaming, deep sleep states of consciousness, they are not, uh, they are relative states of consciousness. They, each of them represent a certain degree, a certain energy that governs the universe uh, in its all entirety. In every experience, in every thought process, in everything, in every act, in, in nature, these three forces are present. You know, like those of you who are familiar with, let's say, categories of Indian thought, I'm sure have heard of the uh, Rajas, Sattva and Tamas, the gunas of nature. And I just quickly uh, give that Sattva is light, equilibrium, is that which upholds them together in perfect balance. Uh, Rajas is motion, energy, passion, desire, is that what sets creation in motion? And tamaguna or tamas is the inertia. It's where each stage in evolution, each stage in creation is being checked in order for it to have a platform to grow to the next stage, like in sacred geometry. So uh, the permutation, the mutability between these three states, the sattva, rajas, and tamas, rules entirely. It rules the day and night and in between. It rules our states, uh, you know, of, of psychological states of consciousness. It affects our thoughts. And likewise, waking, dreaming, deep sleep states of consciousness are manifestations of these energies through the fact that deep sleep represents tamas, 
the inertia. The dreaming state represents the rajas, you know, the, the mind senses are switched off. We dream. It's this activity of the mind, mind left to itself to wonder. And the waking state of consciousness is the manifestation of sattva, veliku equilibrium. This is where our, um, all our faculties are at its maximum. The coherence between mind and body through the sensory perceptions. Just wanted to make that distinction. The transcendence of these states is paramount. We cannot talk about full awakening and full enlightenment unless all three are transcended and the witness, witness abides in itself without any disturbance. The consciousness, the awareness is no longer, no longer overshadowed by any changes that take place on a surface level of existence. I like very much what has been said by our speakers and would like to reinforce some of the comments that were made. There are many, many, and he's certainly here, who have had a at least momentary realization of the nature of the self as free, as unbounded, as removed from the day-to-day ephemeral changing experiences of waking, dreaming, sleeping. And that experience itself can be, to a degree, liberating, to a degree, liberating. Because all of a sudden you're saying, I had no idea that my being, my existence, transcends any temporal experience. And it has nothing really to do much with this body, this environment, this vocation, these responsibilities, these ups and these downs. So that can bring a degree of, of peace and assuredness and a little bit of a sense of inner stability, inner invincibility, because there's at least some recollection, some memory, that though these things come and go, at some level, I am beyond it all, and inherently pure bliss. And there are people who are satisfied with that experience. It's a very satisfying experience, and may even think that, well, I'm among the cognizanti. I'm among the, I know the reality. But at that point, The knowledge of the reality is an intellectual reflection. It's a memory. And that, you know, memories, beliefs aren't much of a thing. Beliefs, thoughts really aren't much of a thing. What is a thing, what is important, is one's living experience, independent of our rationalization or intellectualization about it. It's just the experience of life. Are we still experientially, that universal, unbounded, immortal, timeless reality that is beyond the mind, beyond the intellect, beyond the ego. And until that is established, and it was beautifully explained by Mark, that there's not much of a trick to it except repetition of alternation of universal consciousness with the focused activity of the day. But there are people, I think, who feel that, well, I get it, So I don't need to put in the time to meditate and to transcend. And that, I think, really is a mistaking of the path to the goal. And so at that point, one really should keep going because that universal consciousness, the more it's infused to be a permanent feature of the actual brain functioning of living life, the more life is elevated, the more we are free, the more we're living enlightenment, and not thinking about it. And these days what's interesting is that the brain science has come a long way. 
it's still extremely primitive, quite frankly, in terms of really getting to the basis of what's going on and why, how the brain is able to sustain this experience of universal awareness. That's a big deal for this little piece of meat. But somehow or other, the brain is so exquisitely constructed, and we, this is a whole other subject for a lecture, but so exquisitely constructed that it's designed to resonate in that universal wholeness of life. And that differentiates us, for example, from a lizard that doesn't have a brain that is designed to resonate. And you can look at the structure of the brain of the human and see the difference and how this is set up to mirror, to mimic universal being. How it, the structure of the brain mirrors the unified field as now understood by physics, for example. But in any case, the point is to keep going and you can actually look at the brain and see whether somebody is really living unbounded awareness during waking, dreaming, sleeping or not. And that's helpful. That's helpful because it takes the whole thing from the level of, well, I'm experiencing this and you're not. It makes it a little more objective. But for our own acid test, if we don't carry around an EEG machine, which you can buy for about a hundred bucks these days, for our, we have to learn how to use it. That's a different way. But for our own edification, what was just mentioned by the last two speakers is that it's possible perhaps during waking activity we could kind of imagine or convince ourselves that we are beyond all of this, I'm not overshadowed by this, and it can be simply a mood. But when you're in the, the depth of the deepest point of sleep, there's not a whole lot of self-trickery going on in the state of consciousness. If during the depths of sleep, for, in anesthesia for that matter, if the light of universal consciousness is undimmed if the sense of universal self witnessing the mind and body sleeping established in bliss and immortality a cosmic witness to the drama of dreams cosmic witness to the inertia of sleep which is a wonderful state of consciousness if you're awake to experience it by the way it's really underrated or a cosmic witness to the mind and body engaged in waking action. That's a good acid test. And that's really a sign that you can not stop, I should say, because at that point you have liberation. You are free from the binding influence of action, free from the intense dramas of the ups and downs of life in the absence of the stability of the self. But really life evolution doesn't stop there. And I noticed that Rick differentiated mere liberation, as I tried to yesterday, from full enlightenment, in which the separation of self and non-self eventually dissolves in one grand unity, in which all of this is experienced as nothing but that universal self. Beautiful. Let me just uh, cue right into what you want to say, I think. Um, I get emails from people who say, I'm totally awake, or I'm done, or whatever, and I, and I always say, I don't Maybe not, you know, maybe there's more yet to explore. And it's also very much involved to say, stop seeking, give up the search. And in a sense, that happens at a certain stage in which, you know, you, I think Mark can address this beautifully, the individual yearning, striving, desperate, unfulfilled, I gotta get it thing goes away, but the adventure really just begins then. The, the exploration really begins in earnest. We might spend our remaining time exploring the territory that we might traverse uh, from the stage at which 
that pure awareness is maintained 24-7, as John just described, to whatever, that unity that he alluded to. Just a few comments. Um, in that first experience of undifferentiated pure being, along with activity, there can sometimes almost be a, a depression, if you will. And what I mean by that is one is felt to be so separate that the normal things in life that motivate, that entice us, that, that draw us into heavy socializing or ambition at work or whatever, those driving forces disappear because the nature of the self now knows itself to be the ocean. The ocean doesn't really care about the wave, to be perfectly honest. The ocean is self-sufficient. However, this expanded state of awareness doesn't yet understand what this phenomenal world is around it because it feels separate. And it doesn't really know what the construct is. How does this all come into being? I now know myself to be free. I know myself not to be trapped by these forms. But I don't really know what these forms are. And then starts the most beautiful march of understanding led by the heart. And this is the true place for bhakti yoga. This is where the heart starts to open up and appreciate the absolute divine beauty that exists in everything around us. And that divine beauty we can see clearly because the stress of everyday life is no longer obscuring, impacting, and dampening the ability to see what's really in the environment. And it's an experience of deep appreciation. And that appreciation, love is really just deep appreciation. When you love your wife or your kids, it's because you see so many more things about them that you appreciate that other people don't see. And what happens is this appreciation for the detail, the fine structure of all of nature operating, becomes a sense of devotion and worship is a strong word, but it's a sense of reverence for everything that we see around us that grows into a, a desire or a, a, a merging with that beauty. And suddenly, a day arrives when all of that wakes up. In other words, being that's woken up to itself as infinite now wakes up to itself as the environment. And so there is a journey past CC, cosmic consciousness, liberation, enlightenment. The witnessing, the witnessing. Thank you. We got, we got so many terms here. Yeah. There is a journey past it. People object to that thought. And the reason they object is they don't want to think that there's another job to do for this, this organism. The interesting thing is the job for the individual is over. The individual is completely free of its job. The new job belongs to nature. So it's the infinite awareness itself that has to reconcile itself to the environment. That's the new job. And nature takes it on while we sit there and witness it. We're not doing it anymore. People ask, what is the motivation for action past this waking up state? And Vashista says a beautiful thing. He says, neither do we stop doing what we've always done. Okay, so the momentum that you have in your life, the obligations you've taken on, you know, you don't leave your wife and your kids, you don't quit your job, although, pardon me, some people do. But neither do we cease doing what we've, we've always done, nor do we turn away that which comes to us. In other words, the ocean is now moving the wave. The wave is no longer responsible for where it goes and what it does. And so it's important just to understand that awakening is just a step towards true self-realization where we realize the self in the entire environment. So it's just, just a really important thing to know.
Yeah, like the uh, awakening, it's awakening what? Self is awakens to itself. Self realizes itself. But the level or degree of that realization is often vast. And one cannot just say that this is like, you know, it's not a black and white event. It's uh, all the spectrum of colors that are present there. And as Mark just pointed out right at the beginning of uh, his remark, is that the witnessing state of consciousness, what Mark called um, cosmic consciousness, is often characterized by the increased polarity, by the increased duality. In fact, we feel very often, because we experience that inner peace, inner bliss, we, be, we for the first time in the possession of who we are, of our self. However, the world out there, starting from the sensory perceptions and ideations, ideas and thought process, is still being perceived outside. And this separation is a necessary step. It's this contrast is a very necessary step. Because the self, once it knows itself, is then, then, as Mark again said, is moved to a much more finer process. This is when the real work starts. This is when to say that, okay, I've arrived, this is it, the job is done, I can set up my own satsang. Very often, very often, the speakers, the teachers make this mistake. They speak from that level of awareness, from that level of realization, forgetting that this is not the non-dual realization. It is duality at its utmost, but it is a very tricky state because you are in the possession of the self. However, the world out there is not factually perceived as yourself. Only when you can say sincerely that there is nothing out there in the full range of your perception is not separate from you, that is maybe perhaps one can say that something is happening. But then very often there's no name for it. This is why the truly enlightened people, the truly self-realized people will always avoid this kind of um, speculation of, you know, are you, are you what you talk about? Are you representing, you know, are you, are you really embodying what, what this whole talk? Because it does not even, the thought does not even enter there. Thought, is still, thought still belongs to the uh, dual nature, dual structure of the brain. Just wanted to make that. I'm going to throw one thing quickly into the mix, and it'll only take me a sentence to say, and that is that I often hear descriptions being offered as prescriptions. People sit and describe their experience, give a satsang, kind of picking apart the nature of their experience, and the, the audience can only take it as a prescription, but it really can't be. That's a very useful point because you, there are a lot of enlightened people who've achieved their state of enlightenment through any possible means even through no means, just basically by merit of birth, gifted with a very intact nervous system, and they're experiencing unbounded awareness, they're living in the eternal now, and they look at somebody who's filled with stress and anxiety and places to go, and they just say, I know what your problem is, just be unbounded, just be universal, cosmic. And you know, it's a difficult thing to do, because intellectually, you can't even grasp of that unboundedness, it can only be known on the level of its own direct experience. I have to run, I just wanted to make a comment. This is a wonderful panel, by the way, because it's very clear that the people who are speaking are living that experience of which they are speaking.
That's uh, not always the case. But in any case, um, I will say this, a little bit about technique. In the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is the classic text of yoga, there are techniques to transcend, or transcending meditations, for example, which just take the mind like a rock to sink deeply into the transcendental source of thought, go quickly beyond thought, with no stops along the way, and experience pure, unbounded awareness, the eternal nature of the immortal self. And that's really the technique to both experience it and to alternation with that in activity, as was said, to stabilize that experience in life, in living. Higher states of consciousness, where there's a difference between self, which is infinitely expanded, and non-self, which remains as crude and coarse and bound as it appears right now, starts to melt. And that melting happens. It's, it happens over time. It happens on its own. It's a natural process of refinement, of perception of the world around us and growth of love to enrich the appreciation of the world around us until it literally becomes inseparable from the self, perceived for its reality as nothing but a wave of the universal self, a ripple on the surface of the unified field. But even there, in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, there are techniques to enhance and accelerate that growth because you know, life is short, and as much time as we can spend at the goal, as opposed to on the path, really, it may sound uh, heretical, but the better off we are, because the more fully we enjoy, the sooner, the better. So techniques for accelerating the growth of higher states of consciousness, of realization, beyond mere liberation, mere nirvana, mere immortality, unboundedness, and bliss on the level of the self, has to do with experiencing more of that in the environment. So a technique might, for example, an advanced technique of meditation might involve a technique that has the senses more awake, more open, more alert, as the mind fathoms the deeper and deeper levels of reality, the deeper and deeper levels of thought on the path to the transcendental source of thought. At that point, it may be a little bit slower getting to the goal, but the goal is more or less established by now. Now it's a question of awakening to the gap between the gross and the absolute inner being. And if the senses start to perceive and you become fluid and familiar with the deeper, deeper levels of reality, as if at the quantum mechanical, unified field, quantum field theoretic and unified level, you awaken to more divine levels, lovable levels of reality. And again, it's just going in and out a little more slowly. You can start to see that, oh, this is nothing but that. I see the unified field emerging in a wave of vibration that is an electron, which is not separate from the wave. It is the wave. This is all myself. If you're an ice skater and you fall down, it all happens rather fast. You find yourself on your back. You don't exactly know in detail how you got there. If you fall a lot, as a hockey stay skater, I fell a lot, you actually get very used to the process of falling and actually can protect yourself on the way. It's going through the process of slipping into the transcendent and emerging from it that you know the mechanics of emergence, mechanics of creation, from the origin of creation, 
to the point where you see the seamlessly, no longer a gap, but a seamless connection between the self and non-self. So I guess what I'm saying is technique is important. Practice is important. And it would be incorrect for somebody in a state of enlightenment to say, oh, just be enlightened. Just be. That's fine in that state of consciousness. But in waking consciousness, we have a duty to expand, to grow, to expand in happiness, expand in knowledge, expand in wisdom, and experience ultimately the totality of our infinite self. I have to run at this point, but I'm really happy to have been able to share this yeah. wonderful Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, drive safely, and I hope you catch a flight. Okay. And um, the, the, let's not hang, hang John up with questions or anything, because he really just has to get to, to that plane. Um, but it's officially, this is just about over. It's about 12.30, but now is the lunch break, and we're happy to sit here for as long as people like to discuss and take questions. John's mic, somebody, whoever wants to hand the mic around to those who'd like to ask a question, the one on John's chair could be used for that. And so, and you know, if you're, feel free to leave if you like, but if you're in the back and you'd like to move up toward yes, the front sir. or whatever, uh, feel free to do so. So are there any questions um, to start with? So if I heard what I just heard correctly, um, this has been kind of my question running throughout the whole conference of um, how you embody this space. Like the only times I've ever been able to get any experience of this has been through a transmission of my body, through the senses. So um, so I don't know if any of you can kind of elucidate a little bit more, but I was relieved to hear that there is indeed practice that, you know, that le leads us, that, that helps us lean in a direction that, that opens us, hopefully increasingly, but it's easy for me to get stuck on the gross stuff around me and um and then you know there i can't i don't know how to be in that that's true of everyone it's a very dense world we live in you know <laughs> gentlemen um actually it, it actually feels fitting to uh, in response to your question to um, give conclusive remarks to what john said before his departure is that the reason why practice is important is because the repeated repeated experience of the abiding in the self, or known as samadhi, is necessary before, before what is known as samadhi becomes our day-to-day -day experience. In other words, um, the tradition speaks of the various different samadhis. There is samadhi with awareness, like uh, Savikalpa, there is samadhi without awareness, Nirvikalpa. But all these samadhis have beginning and end. Doesn't matter, you sat 15 minutes in samadhi in one sitting or two hours in samadhi, it has to end in order for the body to function. So each time the body in that state of absorption, there is some amazing transformation takes place. And many traditions speak of that transformation in terms of the, because the metabolic activity becomes nil. There's nothing happening on that level which opens up vast, vast space, vast space for the actual transformative place to take place because metabolic processes always overshadow. It's like our body, even when we're asleep and when, when we rejuvenate, even when we don't do nothing, is constantly busy, is digesting, assimilating, you know, 
digesting food we ate, digesting thoughts we had. So when samadhi takes place, there's none of that happening. There's no physiological functioning. There's no digestion anymore, so to speak. There's no necessity for anything. There's no necessity for breathing. Breath, in fact, becomes suspended. Anyone who has ever experienced samadhi, one of the most amazing things about samadhi is that your breath, incoming and outgoing breath at some point becomes suspense. There's no breathing whatsoever. This is the real meaning of pranayama. All people who teach yoga, they put emphasis on dozens of different practices and they have their purpose and their role. But the actual aim of pranayama is the full suspension of breath. Not holding it, not holding it at force, as some also mistakenly understand. The real tradition of pranayama, the real essence is that, is that when there is no breathing. And then a space between the breath, exactly. The space between the breath, as many scriptures say, that's where the Brahman resides. That's where the absolute, that's where the pure consciousness is. And you are in that space, and you are that space, you are that. So that's why repeated experience of samadhi, that what oils the nervous system, to then embody it in the waking, dreaming, deep sleep. While we eat, while we make love, while we listen to music, while we run doing our morning jog, it is uninterrupted. Tradition calls that Sahaja Samadhi. I'm sure many of you have heard of that. Ramana Maharshi spoke a lot about Sahaja Samadhi. The distinction, Sahaja Samadhi cannot be practiced, but path towards Sahaja Samadhi can be practiced. Because Sahaja Samadhi is not practiced as such. You can sit down and create the conditions whereby you experience Samadhi. The previously mentioned, you know, that when you experience that state of full absorption, yet it has to terminate in order for the body to function. In Sahaja Samadhi, when we're in Sahaja Samadhi, the body can function fully. It's fully operable. And this is what perhaps you were saying in terms of the... That is when the bliss of the self is on the level of the senses. Senses not only no longer overshadow, they become willing participants in that dance of love, in that dance of life. The sense is no longer the obstacles. They, par they take a full engagement. They took a full part in this whole process. I might mention that one finds at that stage that dynamic, challenging situations, whereas they once might have been more trying and more, more difficult to maintain any sort of serenity, become even more fascinating because the contrast increases between the inner silence and the outer dynamism. So running through an airport can be like an amazing experience because here you are in this cave of silence with all this crazy stuff going on. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Very apt. The only thing I'd add is part of your question is how do I easily slip from this coarse, crude world into this state of samadhi? Like, I don't think it's easy. To no. do that. And, you know, no. I have four kids. I got a business. No. I have all kinds of stuff going on. I just want to know that I can get there. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the answer is absolutely yes. The question you have, it, the, slipping into samadhi requires the use of any one of your senses, whether it's a sound, whether it's visual, whether it's touch, and so forth. And so there are techniques that allow, for example, I use a sound-based mantra like meditation. Like mantra. A mantra. Properly used, though, because a lot of mantra meditations keep the mind focused on the surface level. Whereas, properly used, a mantra meditation will allow you to follow the finest sound from its obvious gross level 
to a refined level where it's infinite. And where the mantra is infinite, so too is your awareness. And so if you've got a busy life, you need to do some homework and come up with that type of powerful yet simple uh, meditation. My, my wife and I raised three kids all through, you know, and, and you know that as soon as you start meditating, they're knocking on the door and you know that, that there's going to be screaming as soon as you start and you know, you know all the things about life or just when you're about to meditate, the phone rings and you, you, you know, you have to go pick someone up or whatever. So life can't stop being lived. We just have to find the simplest way to slip into this state so that it repetitiously starts to grow in our lives. I just want to add one uh, thing is that it's very important that, uh, that you have this understanding that it is indeed difficult to go into samadhi. However, you are in samadhi even now. There is no other way. Samadhi is the background of our being. Our being springs from samadhi. We do not create samadhi. We do not reconstruct. Samadhi is not some kind of a special state that we're trying to get into. Samadhi is becoming who we are. That's what samadhi really is. Awareness of that removes all these outside, let's say, trials. Although there will be a lot of errors, but at least we remove that, you know, that what it requires is to be. When I understood that on a, on a meditative mat many, many years ago, it took tremendous amount of pressure of meditative process. I suddenly like, like, that's what this is all about. Meditation is a spontaneous process. All of us are sitting here in a soup in the ocean of meditation. We all are already in that state of transcendence. However, what covers or abstracts or obscures or eclipses that is the fluctuations on the surface of what Mark talked earlier in the, in the talk. It is the wave, the surface of the waves. So we don't do anything. It happens on its own if we are, if we are using the right circumstance, a right setting, you know, an appropriate, let's say, methodology. Because then it's natural. I just wanted to turn. I believe the gentleman in the second row here had a question. Yes. I was wondering about, you know, we're always hearing, you know, um, to find oneself is to ask the question, who am I? So when we look for this self, though, it is, it's not there. So, I mean, even at the beginning of the inquiry or even in the, in the exploration, it's really difficult already because the thing that's, that's looking for that self is also non-existent. And the thing that you're looking for is also non-existent. So how, how, how could you actually explore that? Something that exists, you're looking for something that, 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 that's supposed to exist, you feel it, you experience it. I mean, you experience it, but when you look for it, it's not there. How could that be? How, how, how can something that doesn't exist, exist? So who is the you that experiences it? I'm asking you that. No, no. no. <laughs> I, I'll tell you why I asked the question. It's very there is some state of awareness necessary to have an experience. Okay, the so we know... For we know that you are conscious enough to even ask this question. Absolutely. We know you're conscious enough to have this interaction. Are we okay so far? Oh, yeah. So that consciousness doesn't yet know itself. It, it is abstract, but... 
that consciousness right now is projected from your eyes on me, and we're speaking, and there is a sensory exchange between us, but it appears within yourself that it's happening between you and I. Now that consciousness that's doing the interaction doesn't yet know that it's infinite. It hasn't yet woken up to its infinite potential, its knowledge of itself. So when you say no one's there, I'd like to change it slightly and say something is there. That something is awareness. It's not nothing. It's something enough to notice itself. It's sounding very abstract now when I get to this place. But this apparatus is capable of having infinity, no infinity, through this apparatus. They're really tough words to deal with because right now who I am feels like trapped inside here. How could that ever be infinite? But it's nature, the nature of us even having an interaction depends on infinite being, being here right now. I, not, I don't think I've answered your question. No, I, but, I, I, but I, I think I could put a little something on that. And then after that, the AV guy told me that they have to move equipment and we'll have to stop using the equipment. We, we could still stay for a while and talk without uh, audio stuff if you want to come up close. But, you know, Ramana Maharshi, of course, popularized thing of self-inquiry. In his uh, milieu, it was a situation where it was, you know, his, his silence, his presence was the main technique. And if you had the opportunity to be in his vicinity, you, all you had to do was sit there and soak it up. And there would be, a, a, in many cases, a spontaneous self-realization. But, you know, he gave people a technique for those who needed something, and that was self-inquiry. But even that wasn't considered universal. If that didn't do it for you, he would step it down a notch and say, okay, well, practice maybe meditation or something. And if that didn't do it for you, he'd step it down a notch and say, okay, maybe selfless service, go out and do some karma yoga. And I'm just using him as, him as an example because he's so widely respected. You know, as Sly and the Family Stone said, it's different strokes for different folks. There's a whole range of, of practices and techniques and, and things that you, you can sort of find your, your place on the spectrum of those and find something that works for you. And one thing will lead to the next. So if you find that this self-inquiry thing doesn't make sense for you and it's just you're not getting anywhere with it, maybe there's a different practice that would 